0: We're in a series here called March to the Cross. We are getting Easter ready and we are re-gospeling and reminding ourselves of the beauty of everything that Jesus has done through his sacrificial, atoning uh, death on the cross so that you and I could be taken from death to light, from dark to light, um, so that you and I could be made right before God. In John's Gospel, there's five chapters that cover the Last Supper of Jesus. We spent the first six weeks looking at those five chapters, but today I want to open up our Bibles to the book of Matthew and kind of pivot as we're two weeks out from Easter Sunday. I said we're two weeks out from Easter Sunday, two two weeks out from everybody come to church Sunday. Uh, it's going to be so much fun. I'm looking forward to preaching uh, an Easter sermon here at Four Points Church. So we're in the book of Matthew. Uh, we're, I've called this message, We Go Free Like Barabbas. We go free like Barabbas. So if you're taking notes, maybe write that down as a header and a reminder. We go free, because of what he's done, like Barabbas. One of my favorite things to do in high school, I know this is going to be odd and awkward, was I loved high school theater. and I, I was a thespian. I was a wannabe thespian. Any, any thespians out there, like you were in Oklahoma, or I was Conrad Birdie and Bye Bye Birdie, which means I was a rock star, and I was supposed to be like Elvis, and I had a power stance that I would do, and uh, my mom wasn't embarrassed completely by it. It was great. Um, but in every play, there's major characters and minor characters. And the minor characters are just kind of a setting on the stage. They're in the background, but they're not really to be noticed. And it's your job just to basically create a seamless experience that tells the narrative and the story for everybody that's watching. But you stay back out of the spotlight if you're the minor character because it's the major characters who really carry the story forward. One of the things I love about our Savior is he does everything upside down. And in his trial on his way to the cross, there are four minor characters that play a major role in us understanding the character of God. And today we're going to look at one of those minors. But just to give you the other three, in the middle of his uh, Via Dolorosa, his walk to Golgotha, there's a man named Simon of Cyrene who no one would know. He was just a face in the crowd on the road. And he's pulled out of the crowd according to Mark chapter 15 verse 21. And for a part of Christ's journey on the hill of Calvary, there's a man that walked that journey uniquely close with him, carrying the weight of the cross beam that Jesus carried, a minor character that plays a major role. We're still talking about him thousands of years later today. You wouldn't even know his name or that he ever existed had he not been pulled in as a minor character into the major story of God. Then there's the story of the repentant criminal on the cross, which teaches us about the heart and the depth of the mercy of God. Two criminals hang there with him, and Jesus believed to be hung in the middle of them. One criminal cries out and speaks against him, and another cries out for mercy from him. And here's what's beautiful about the gospel. You don't have to live a life that pays back the salvation that Christ gives. But at any moment, even your last, you can cry out to Jesus, and he is faithful and just to forgive those who put their faith in him. And that criminal went from a death separated from God to a death that led to paradise when his eyes opened moments after the cross. Because of what he's done. Uh, Then there's the Roman soldier, the, the first Gentile after the cross to profess who Christ was. He stood there with darkened skies and after the earth shook according to the scriptures and he said, surely this was a man of God. So we have these minor characters that make a major impact in the story of Christ's cross, but none make a bigger impact than the man named Barabbas, in my opinion. Barabbas was a notorious criminal, a man that had done a lot of wrong, yet his life in its last moments is intersected in the most beautiful invitation and way possible by a savior who stood in his place. And today, that's the story we get to look at in Matthew 27. Let's read the text together. We're going to pick it up in Matthew 27, starting in verse 15. Now, it was the governor's custom. Who's the governor? Anybody remember? Pilate, Pontius Pilate. Jewish citizen, Roman citizen? Roman citizen? Some of you are like, you're the preacher. What are you doing asking us? (laughs) Now, it was the governor's custom each year during the Passover celebration to release one prisoner to the crowd, anyone they wanted. This year, there was a notorious prisoner, a man named Barabbas. As the crowds gathered before Pilate's house that morning, he asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Messiah? He knew very well that the religious leaders had arrested Jesus out of envy. Just then, as Pilate was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him this message: "Leave that innocent man alone. I suffered through a terrible nightmare about him last night." So we get into the story and we're given a setting. The setting is the fourth of six trials that Jesus faces on his way to the cross. He was arrested and seized by Judas and the temple guard. He was tried before the Sanhedrin, passed back and forth between Pilate and Herod. And now he's on the fourth trial the fourth moment where he's investigated interrogated and asked questions about the charges that were being brought against him by the jewish priest now the jewish uh priests, the pharisees they had one task and that was not just to condemn him by the law of god but to get him condemned under the law of rome because if they couldn't get him condemned in the law of rome then they could have a problem with them but they were limited in what they could do to him and they didn't need jesus in prison they needed him dead because in their mind, in the words of a pirate, dead men tell no tales or lies. Dead men tell no lies. Tales. is tales. That's what I was going for. Lies maybe too. I don't know. Whatever you want to insert. Tales. <laughs> lies. Whatever. Jesus didn't speak lies, but you get the point. Dead men tell no tales, and that was the goal. Snuff out this message in this Messiah that was threatening their, posi- uh, their, their position and seat in society. So we're told that it was the custom of the governor, that's Pilate, a Roman citizen, to uh, allow one prisoner to go free during what festival? Passover. What was Passover celebrating? If you go back to the book of Exodus, you'll find the first Passover. There were people that were imprisoned They were given some freedom, but they were oppressed as a people. And they cried out to God, and God heard their cry and chose a murderer that was hiding in the backwoods of nowhere named Moses to go and say, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let my people go. Huh, yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry, 1990s youth ministry. And (laughs) Pharaoh said no. So then a series of plagues began to come against the most powerful kingdom in the world. And there's this tough text that we have to deal with that we don't have time to wrestle with today. But it said, God continued to harden Pharaoh's heart. So that his people, the people that he was delivering, would understand the depth of his power and the ability of his hand to part waters and rain down manna and provide for them what they have yet to receive or believe to be a possibility for their life. And so after six plagues, there comes another plague where the angel of death is going to come into Egypt. But there are some households he's going to pass over and not take the firstborn son, the households that had the lamb's blood on it. And there was a meal that they would eat annually that would be a reminder of how they were allowed to go free because the blood of the lamb covered the doorpost and God broke them free from their oppressor. Uh, All pointing ahead to what God was going to ultimately do in Jesus Christ, who is the lion and the, the lamb, the sacrifice for our sin. And so every year they pause for a moment to remember that their forgiveness and position in life is not free, but it is established by the power and the hand of God. And in, in the symbol of them going free, Pilate let one person go free. Now, why would he have an interest in letting someone go free as a Roman governor? He's not a Jewish citizen. He's not a believer of God. Why would he have an interest in letting, allowing them to go free? Well, Rome came through and conquered everything. And they set up a garrison of soldiers in every city they conquered. Because if an uprising took place in a city that you conquered and you were understaffed in that city to deal with it, you could lose that city, lose the taxes. You couldn't pay your soldiers, which is how you kept your force in the world to keep everybody afraid of you and your empire growing. So they would set up governors that represented Rome's interest. And their primary job was to ensure that everyone paid taxes and that everyone stayed in line. And they would come in and they would establish a rule. The rule was there is a religio that every single one of you must adhere to. It's the, where we get the root word religion. And so the religio was you must believe that Caesar is preeminent and first. And Caesar is God. And you pay taxes to Caesar. You serve Caesar. You give honor to Caesar. You don't rebel against Caesar. You don't rival Caesar. And then you, as a people, can believe whatever superstitio you want to believe, which is where we get the root word for superstition. So they came in and they said, here's the state-mandated religion, and you can keep your superstition. And so he had an interest in working with the Pharisees, even though he didn't believe what they believed, to keep the peace so that they wouldn't have an uprising, pay their taxes, and Rome can continue to grow. It's the playbook of the oppressor. Make them think they're free and never let them understand that they really aren't free. It's the playbook of Satan. You're free, and your sin's not that bad, not knowing that you're a slave to it, and it owns you. You think you're the master, but you've been mastered by want. You've been mastered by sin, and it controls you, and your attention, and your affection, and the way you live, but you think you're the master of it. Huh? It's not the way it works. So in the story, what happens? Pilate has Jesus brought to him for a second time. And in the Passover celebration, it's his job to present options for someone who is guilty of a crime or accused of a crime to be allowed to go free. And so he gives them two options, two men that are completely different. The first man he gives them, verse 16, this year was a notorious prisoner. That means he had sinned and done things that everybody knew about. Some of you got a record, we don't know about it. Some of you got a record and you made the news, and a lot of people know about it. And everywhere you go, you're walking this dance of, do they know or don't they know? Was that look a look of them knowing or a look of them not knowing? (laughs) And and you're wrestling that. Barabbas knew everybody knew it. He may have even been seen in some ways by some people as a, a cultural icon and a hero. He was a part of a group known as the Saqqara. They carried knives and swords and If you read the text, we get more detail because this story, Barabbas' story, is covered in all four Gospels. And if you flip over and look, you'll find out in Mark 15, 7, that this is what he had most recently done. Mark 15, verse 7, he says this. One of the prisoners at that time was Barabbas, a revolutionary who had committed murder in an uprising. Barabbas, the murderer, or Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. The, the one who's professing to be king of the Jews. Now, verse 17, the invitation is given to the people to make a choice. As the crowds gather before Pilate's house, that morning he asked them, which one do you want me to release to you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Messiah. Barabbas or Jesus. Two incomparable people. Luke's gospel gives us a little bit more detail about the comparison of the two candidates for Release. First, he speaks of Jesus in Luke chapter 23, verse 13. In Luke 23, 13, then Pilate called together the leading priest, the leaders of the people of Israel. Some leadership is leadership that's not good, some leadership is leadership that's bad, but they have influence. And other religious leaders, along with the people, and he announced his verdict. You brought this man to me, accusing him of leading a revolt. I have examined him thoroughly on this point in your presence, and find him, what's the word? Glove didn't fit. Got to acquit. He's innocent. Look at what he goes on to say. Verse 14, Herod came to the same conclusion and sent him back to us. So it's not just Pilate who has determined this. Herod also is in agreement. There's nothing Jesus has done that is worthy of death, and he sent him back to us. Nothing this man has done calls for the death, and he. So I will have him scourged, flogged, and then I will release him. Then a mighty roar rose from the crowd. What's Pilate's main job? Keep peace. Don't let an uprising happen. Make sure they pay their taxes on Monday. A mighty roar rose up from the crowd, and with one voice they shouted, "Kill him! And release!" barabbas to us who do you want jesus son of god miracle worker healer lover of the least jesus or barabbas the murderer the insurrectionist the wrongdoer who do you want and the crowd heartily yells give us barabbas now here's what's interesting Barabbas's name, if you break it down, has a unique meaning in comparison to Jesus. Bar means, uh, Bar means son of, and if you listen to disco, you already know what Abba means. It means father. Son of the father. Uh, in the NIV and the NET, it included the first name of Barabbas, which appears in the ancient text. Origen, a theologian, discovered this observing some of those ancient texts. He says this. He reports that in several manuscripts of the Gospels he had seen the name given as Jesus Barabbas. So apparently, Barabbas' first name was Jesus. His last name was Barabbas, Jesus, son of a father. Or Jesus, son of Abba. Accordingly, the first name was afterward omitted from the manuscripts of the Gospels when the name of Jesus became sacred because they didn't want the two being put side by side. Pilate's question is, who do you want to go free? Jesus, Barabbas, or Jesus the Christ? Barabbas, son of a father, or Jesus Christ, God's son, sent by the Father? Look at the, look at the text. Verse 19, just then, as Pilate was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him this message, leave that innocent man alone. If you are over 55, raise your hand. Okay, you have one reason you're alive. If you're a man over 55, raise your hand. Sorry. You have one reason you're alive. There was a woman somewhere that looked out for you and kept you from being stupid. This is pastoral opinion. It's not in the text, but I think there's good reason to believe it. Amen. One amen. One, one man's getting, getting supper. The rest of you have missed that option. Uh, Pilate's wife comes and says, do not mess with the innocent man. Have, have nothing to do with him. She's trying to talk some sense into him. Have a backbone, Pilate. Don't do what the crowd wants. Don't be a people pleaser, Pilate, in this moment. Uh, Don't don't answer their call for this evil. So the question's posed to the crowd. Pilate turns to his wife, distracted in that moment. And look at what the text says. Leave that innocent man alone and suffer through a terrible nightmare. Verse 20, Meanwhile, as Pilate is distracted, the leading priest the pharisees sadducees and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for okay whose job is it to know the word the priest, the priest. whose life had been dedicated to finding and pointing out the coming messiah the priest but there was a secondary agenda that had blinded them from the primary call of Scripture. They spent their life memorizing the Bible. If they were in the Pharisees' courts, that meant they had Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all the way through to Malachi, memorized. Some of you memorized John 3:16 when you were in high school and went to a WW event and held it up. It was awesome. They memorized the whole Old Testament. We're talking Leviticus. The details of building the temple in memory. They could walk you through the temple and be like, let me tell you exactly how long that wall is, how high that wall is, why that's there, why that's there, why that's in that position and not over there, because they knew the law of God. Yet in all of their familiarity, in the moment where the Messiah that had been prophesied was coming, they missed it. And it should be obvious, and let me explain. The Old Testament is chalked full of God calling his shot. It's called prophecy. Psalm 22, 250 years before crucifixion is ever on earth are being practiced by the Persians, the first who did it. We get Psalm 22 where it speaks of the coming Messiah that would be pierced through for our sin. It speaks of how his bones would be exposed from scourging, something that was not practiced on earth. God is saying, I'm going to do this. Y'all are likely going to miss it. Satan's going to try and fight against it, but I'm God and I do what I want. So in significant and great detail, so that you and I would have confidence and reason to believe, he calls the shot of what the Messiah would come to do. We get the fifth gospel in Isaiah chapter 53 that many theologians call the fifth gospel because it's so centered on the coming Messiah. And it says he's despised and rejected, a man of sorrows. You, you would think it would occur to them, hey, the Bible is saying we're going to miss this. We, got, we, we need to be mindful. We're, we're going to miss. The Messiah, yet in the moment where they could point to the Messiah, they stir up the crowd against Jesus. Now, l- let me make something very clear. Some have used this text to create anti semitic thoughts towards the Jewish people, and that absolutely is not found, or is there any grounds for that in here? Let-, let me explain. While we think the world is out of control in this story, and you could think that this is a tragedy where a crowd rose up and got an innocent man killed. What you need to know is there was a sovereign God in authority as Father overseeing the entire proceedings within time. Deuteronomy says there can be no, forgiving, there can be no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. So if Jesus' blood isn't shed, forgiveness is not given. The cross was not a... Possible choice. It was the plan and the choice of the Father for the Son. And the Son is already in the garden, sweating blood, drank the wrath of our sin, and in the process is allowing God the Father to put the sin of you and me thousands of years later on His shoulders so that He could go to the cross to die for our sin in our place. This was always. The plan, yet man tried to subvert it and the Pharisees tried to work against it. And in this moment, they stir up the crowd to pick the murderer, not the innocent man. So the governor asked again after speaking to his wife, which of these do you want me to release to you? And the crowd shouted back, Barabbas, give me the murderer. There's a tension we could have with our leaders. Uh, They are flawed. Because in various ways, if you've been in church long, you've been fell by a pastor. I mean, there's a mega church of church-hurt people that don't go to church no more. And we we tend to have this, this tendency of being really cynical towards people God uses or being really blind to people God may be using. Cynical in that we figured out they were human after all. And instead of inviting them shoulder to shoulder as a brother or sister in arms with us, we deified them so we had no other choice but to demonize them. Blind, because for some of us, we're so in love with pastors and leaders that we don't listen or consider the scriptures and we assume anything they do say is scripture and they are fallible people just like you and me in need of grace and mercy. So the, the, the extremes are cynical and blind. I'm trying to raise the church of Bereans. Some of you don't know what I mean, but in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17, verse 11, um, it says this, Acts 17, 11, there's this group that the Apostle Paul was preaching to, and it says they were open, and the people of Berea were open-minded, were more open minded than those in Thessalonica. So they didn't say, I don't want to hear the word of God. I don't want to know the way of God. I don't know the work of God. They, they wanted to know, but in hearing it, they received it. They listened eagerly to Paul's message. They mend the preacher and got out on time to go to lunch. They, they then, though, took what was being preached to them and searched the I'm fallible. This is not. I state a lot of opinions. This states truth. So they took what they were hearing that sounded good and they took it to the text to make sure that it was good. Because there's a tension that you could come to a place or a church that tickles your ears with what sounds good, but is rotten in the core, and it's no good at all, and it ain't helpful, and it's just feeding into a lie of self-sufficiency that you already wanted affirmed instead of teaching you God dependency, which is what you need to be living by and on. And so you find yourself in this tension of being cynical because you trusted a preacher and the trust got betrayed, or blind because you Overtrust a person not understanding they're a sinner in need of a savior just like you. When in reality in reality you've been called to be the royal priesthood that takes what you hear from the stage to the book and if it's not in line with the book you hold the man on the stage accountable by the book to the book because it's about the book that reveals Jesus Christ to us. My call to you this morning is be a Berean. That was my rabbit trail that I put in there. Now, here's the point. Uh, Barabbas comes into the story, but he's not on stage. He's not being presented to the people. He's likely in a holding cell nearby awaiting crucifixion. In fact, more than likely, looking at the Jewish history books I studied this week, he is on the day of his own death. Which is why it'd be brought to mind. More than likely, not within the text. Paul looks, up, Pilate looks over and goes, "Who's who's on deck?" And Barabbas was the big name on the list. Oh, we know about him, the murderer. Off of his wife's warning, he's likely trying to find an out to get around, not looking like he's losing face, or not causing an uprising that would lose his position. But give them the worst possible replacement for the most innocent of people that were standing beside him. Huh. So he brings up the name. Now, if you look at a map of Jerusalem at the time of Jesus, uh, I'm sure all of you can see this very clearly. <laughs> so you have to trust me a little bit, and then like a Berean, go Google yourself. It says right here, we got. Golgotha would have been right outside this side of the gate. That's where the crucifixion and burial would have been nearby. They wouldn't have crucified him on top of the hill. They would have crucified him at the bottom of the hill. The hill set a backdrop and a background for the crucifixion. Uh, I'll get into maybe some more of that later. Uh, His crucifixion and burial would have been up there. But right here on the side wall, there would have been a platform near the praetorium where Pilate would have daily sentenced those who were accused of crimes against Rome to crucifixion. This is believed to be the place where all of the conversation we're looking at in Matthew chapter 27 is taking place, right here on the side. And more than likely, somewhere around this side of the wall, there would have been a small holding area where prisoners would have been kept who were awaiting their final sentencing for crucifixion. So Barabbas awaked to the day, thinking, this is it. My last day on earth. I'll never hug my mother. I'll never see my friends or my family again. No last meal. No more moms cooking. It's done. And sitting in that cell nearby, he likely couldn't hear Pilate, but he could hear a crowd. And as he sat in his cell, look at what the text says. Pilate, Asked again, verse 21, which of these two do you want me to release to you? The crowd shouted back. You hear not Pilate, but the first thing you hear is Barabbas. Then, after calming them down, Pilate responded, Then what should I do with Jesus who is called the Messiah? Barabbas hears, Crucify him. You're in the cell guilty. You know what you've done. Rome speaks against you. Some of your own people speak against you. Your own conscience speaks against you. And what you're hearing is Barabbas, Barabbas, crucify. And you deserve it. Huh. Moments after this interaction, a Roman soldier comes by and says, Jesus, Barabbas, it's your lucky day. You're going to go free because Jesus, the Christ, is going in your place. This is not a story of exchange. An exchange would have been one or the other. That's what the people thought was happening. No, no, no. This is a story of divine substitution. It's one in place of the other. You see, he made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. He made him who was not identified, named by, or known to sin, sin. Now, you and I can be marked by, identified by, and known by sin. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3 23. Romans 6 23. For the wage of sin is we deserve it. We have purchased it with our own actions. But God. (laughs) But God being rich Paul says he gives us grace upon grace and if you study it in the Greek it means grace upon 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 grace, upon grace. bubba from woodruff upon grace <laughs> went further than you ever thought you would go upon Grace. The idea is the well continue and constantly is pouring out grace, but it never diminishes in its size. It never goes low. It never runs out. The grace of Christ, the the resurrection. Okay. Jesus said he was making payment for our sin on the cross. The resurrection proves that the check has cleared and that in my place, the righteous has died for the unrighteous. See, when Jesus went to the cross... He didn't go there. This is a tough theological understanding. He didn't go there as the perfect, blameless son of God. He hung there as the unrighteous, sinful people that had rebelled against him. He made him who knew no sin to become sin. He hung there as Barabbas and Russes. He hung there as You. Why? Because it's only in the place of substitution that you could be exchanged in your unrighteousness to be called righteous. It's only in the place of substitution that what is so wrong deep within you could be made right before him. So as our substitute in our place. We walked free as Jesus deserved because he walked condemned as we deserved. <laughs> in my place, in my place, with lines I couldn't erase, I was blind, oh yeah. Hmm. In my place. See, th- this is salvation. This is why I get to extend the invitation to say, whosoever, would believe. Why? Because the blood and the sacrifice was enough for whosoever to come. It's not about what you've done, how bad you've been, how far you've gone, the guilt you carry, the past that you're trying to make up for with self-righteous works and effort that somehow will make you approvable and a church person that's worthy to sit in the room. No, no, no. It's not, it's not about what you've done. It's about what he's done that offers this invitation that you can't earn. That's why it's grace and freely received, and he offers it to you. He desires to be a substitute for you. So you can be forgiven and made new. Our prayer team's gonna be here because today is a day where some of you need to receive the substitution of Christ in your place. You need to surrender your life to him. Romans 10 concludes, uh, ends the Roman road that explains we are sinners in need of a savior and it ends by saying this in Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Christ Jesus was raised from the dead, then he is just and righteous to forgive you of all your iniquity or sin if you don't have a KJV that throws the hard words in. Some of you got a lot of iniquity. He's got a lot of grace. And he offers his life as substitute in your place. So, so come over church. Heard the gospel a hundred times, but you've got a secondhand faith that's passive and dislike like come home. Like let the life of Christ, may, <laughs> let the life of Christ reign and rule over you today. If you need to give your life to Jesus, I'm inviting you to leave your pride. I'm inviting you to leave your reputation. I'm, I'm inviting you to leave this sense of what other people think in the seat and stand to your feet not not in some manipulative way but saying I need the substitute in my place to forgive me for what I've done to deliver me from whom I've been to give me life that I haven't earned to fill me with the spirit that empowers me to overcome what I've been defeated by I need Jesus and if that is you I invite you to run I invite you to walk but I invite you to move to the front as we sing this truth, that it is finished and done for whosoever believes in him. And let today be the day of salvation for you. Our prayer team is going to be here. You move as the Lord leads. In Jesus' name, Amen. Let's sing. Now Come on a throne of man.